You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining me again. Tonight, I have another return guest. I know we've been on kind of a kick lately, but um, uh, he's actually got the distinction of being three times on the show, and it's always a real pleasure having him on. Uh, He's got a lot to say, and of course, I am talking about Mr. Jay Summers from Sandfire Ranch. And he's going to join us to talk about a couple of things. Um, Jay actually reached out to me a couple of weeks ago, and we kind of just talked about, I guess, some of the issues that happen with sellers and vendors and whatnot and how to really develop a good uh, customer-vendor relationship. And um, we got to talk, and we decided it would make for an interesting show. So we're going to get into that. And, uh, you know, first I want to thank everyone for the nice uh, five-star reviews and Apple Podcast. I uh, caught a couple caught a couple of new ones recently, and I want to thank everyone for that. And if you're interested in supporting the show, by all means, go check out the Patreon page. For the five dollar tier, you get a shout out at the beginning of an episode, uh, the beginning of an upcoming episode. So go check it out if you're interested in supporting the show. Those are two great uh, two great ways to do so. So uh, first and foremost, I think uh, we really don't even need introductions. Uh, Jay, what's going on, man? How you been since we spoke last? Uh, you know, I've been good. Just. Uh... Every day is the same, pretty much. You know, there's highs and lows and not much changes <laughs> in life and in animals. Yeah, what's what's that expression? The more things change, the more they stay the same, right? Pretty much. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's always, I mean, there's always something new uh, coming and there's always like a new project or a, a new direction or something that I feel like, uh, eh, you know, it's just not really worth uh, putting a lot of attention and focus on, so... Uh, you know, it's ever changing, always evolving. So, yeah. I'm, I mean, are there any new projects that you've been up to since we since we spoke last? Um, you know, I, you know, when I took over Sandfire and running it and all the operations, uh, I had a an like an idea of where I wanted to go with it, and you know, I had these discussions with Bob and uh, told him where I thought you know, Sandfire should go. Uh, and then, you know, kind of blending my areas of interest and the things that I've done and focused on in my life, uh, and how they might, um, blend well with certain things that Sandfire does. And, you know, looking at, you know, the hobby and trends and things of that nature, uh, you know, I, I just kind of stayed on that, on that trajectory. And so as far as new things, you know, well, I mean, I'll tell you guys straight up, like if you don't already know, like there is no bearded dragon on Sandfire Dragon Ranch's property. Uh, those are long gone and never going to be done again. Uh, and so there's always been this big focus of Sandfire to be on amphibians, but nobody, I mean, most people knew that if they knew anything about Sandfire, but people who didn't, uh, you know, they just thought it was a bearded dragon place. And it's not, it's always been, you know, 90% amphibians. Um, so, I mean, I, I see, uh, my own interest in the things that keep me going and, you know, there's just certain things I would never do like breed bearded dragons. And so I have to do things that interest me. And, uh, so my focus with, with obscure amphibians, obscure lizards, and, uh, uh, you know, especially like caudates, you know, newts and salamanders, and then really kind of off the wall frogs, but, and a couple of things I can't really tell you about because it's like secret stuff right now. Um, some things I don't like to talk about until 
it's actually ready. You know, like where I, I, I have a lot of times in my life where I keep species for years and nobody knows it until I have them available uh, to sell. And because uh, I often feel like, well, what's the point of telling people I have it other than like an ego stroke, you know? And uh, so, you know, a couple things I can't say, uh, but I, I will say that uh, I produced a new mutation of White's tree frog. Uh, I can't say what it is, but uh, that's something that uh, I'm hoping uh, is recessive or at least uh, inheritable and not just some anomaly that's a one-off. Um, and then, uh, you know, just uh, focusing on the newts, focusing on other tree frogs. I've been putting a lot of energy into the super snowflake morph of White's tree frog uh isolating animals and picking and choosing what what needs to go together to produce like the nicest ones ever produced and uh you know getting away from producing anything that's below you know like if you had an eight to ten scale i'm trying to produce tens and honestly if it's not at least a six uh, i'm not even gonna breed them so some of that stuff will be liquidated uh to you know in some way shape or form and uh, some of it will just live its uh, life out at like the Shady Acres portion of Sandfire Dragon Ranch and uh, go out to pasture. And, you know, it's one of those things where I don't really want to sell adults to people because economically speaking, it's kind of pointless to do that. Uh, you know, no one wants to pay what an adult pair of those types of frogs is truly worth on production value, you know. Everybody wants to buy a female so they can breed them and make $10,000, but nobody wants to pay $5,000 for the female, you know? <laughs> so, so that's, that's kind of that thing. And, uh, you know, just focusing on some uh, more obscure, uh, agamids, uh, some bigger stuff, uh, and, you know, just really kind of working hard on the, the high end whites, tree frog mutations. Um, and, and that's pretty much it. It's interesting that you mentioned about the history of Sandfire, and obviously Bearded Dragons haven't been in the picture for a long time. Do you ever think about rebranding the business at all to kind of redirect well, focus towards what you're working with? The, the issue is is that people who know already know that Sandfire, you know, that, like Bob was always an amphibian and fro like a frog guy. He was always a frog guy. I mean, he's been breeding white tree frogs for 40, at least 40 years, you know. And, you know, they, him and Philippe were like the first ones to breed, uh, I think it was Chicoan horn frogs, uh, Cranoli. I think it was Cranoli that they were the first to breed. I mean, they, they were, him and Philippe were like this, like age old partnership of these, these two guys that did all this stuff together and they accomplished all these, you know, pioneering moments in the, in the trade or the hobby. And so people who know, know that Sandfire has always been more of an amphibian place. And bearded dragons were just like kind of thrown on Bob as like a gift at one time. And then he just kind of went with it. But for the most part, you know, that was never, that was never the focus until, you know, that blew up. And then, you know, he started doing like large scale production and, you know, wholesaling to like Petco and all of that stuff. And, you know, all that stuff's been done with for a long time. There's no, there's no like large scale production of, there's no business being done with any box stores. You know, I, I don't even hardly wholesale anything to anyone anymore. You know? Yeah. yeah I, 
it's funny. I mean, especially when you think back to the, like the history of Bearded Dragons. I mean, when Bearded Dragons came into the hobby, they were kind of like this weird anomaly. I mean, I remember seeing one for the first time and thinking like, my God, I never thought I would actually see this. And yeah. they sort of blew up and became this like, like a hobby, like a hobby staple. I mean, they're God more, like more people probably have Bearded Dragons than they have dogs, but well, that's, totally. a, that's a stretch, but no, I, I think you're probably right. I mean, you have to think like, uh, you know, I mean, I can't, I can't come up with the exact numbers in my head, but like, you know, Petco on its own probably buys a thousand bearded dra- dragons a week Wow! to stock their stores. Yeah. And that's just Petco. That's not PetSmart. That's not all these other pet stores. That's not all the mom and pop shops. That's not all the other, that's not all the online stuff. Like there are an obscene amount of bearded dragons being produced annually. I'm always just curious in terms of like where they go. So, I mean, you know, I think there's a, I think a lot of people are just uh, people that get their kid a pet bearded dragon and they don't, they just keep them for 10 years until they pass away. And then I'm sure there's some attrition rates, uh, some animals that don't make it, but I think a lot of animals just go in as uh, an individual pet, you know, like someone that buys a parakeet. You know, you talk to people who aren't reptile people, and almost everybody's heard of a bearded dragon at this point because somebody knows somebody whose kid has one or nephew or something, you know? I have one. I mean. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's easy yeah. to take care of one. But to breed them and keep large quantities of them, uh, that's that's one reason why they got clipped from Sandfire. Plus, I don't have any desire to breed bearded dragons. But uh, they're just too much work and effort for for what you get out of them in a profit margin, especially for wholesale. Yeah. I mean, go, going back, I mean, obviously, you know, you, you've had experience breeding for, for a very, very long time. And, um, I have really like no, no experience, but I mean, you and I kind of came up around the same time. I mean, did you ever think that the, the exotics industry with reptiles and amphibians would get to the point today where it was, uh, no. you know, looking back? No, it's nuts. It's absolutely insane. No way. <laughs> like, no way, man. <laughs> like, this is crazy. It's crazy to me, you know, uh, to see where we're at right now and where we were. It's just, uh, it's, it's crazy. You know, it's funny because like, uh, I, I did, uh, the reptile super show in Anaheim, uh, on, uh, September 10th through 12th. And I would, I would, you know, fairly confidently say, uh, it might've been the largest reptile show in the history of all reptile shows. And I've gone to a lot of big reptile shows in my life. You know, I used to go to Orlando every year before it moved to Daytona. Then I went to Daytona and I stopped going cause it wasn't worth it. I used to go to Tinley all the time when I lived in the Midwest. I've been to Ham multiple times. I've been to other countries, reptile shows that were big. And, you know, that thing was three acres, 500 tables, and, you know, so many people through the door that I I couldn't even, like, guesstimate a number. But it was definitely over 20,000. And... It was insane. And I would have never imagined something like that as a kid. I mean, we didn't even have reptile shows really, you know? I mean, that's, that's incredible. I mean, I don't, I don't get out much. I mean, I don't get to, there's a couple of local expos I get to, but I mean, yeah. that, that's huge. It's incredible. 
I mean, I just remember being young. It, it was like me and like three other guys in high school who had any kind of exotics. And I was the one who was nuts who actually had, I, I had converted my closet into a reptile room. Yeah. But I never in a million years thought the the people that are involved with exotics now would be, I just, I never thought that the types of people would vary so much. Because I mean, when you and I were young, let's face it, they, there was a type, you know what I mean? There was a certain, yeah. there was a type of person who kept these things. And now it just yeah. runs a spectrum. I mean, every, it everybody, it's, it's, they've become so, so ubiquitous. It's just like the same as dogs and cats. Right. No, you get the homeschool, you know, moms and like, you know, the people with like a rubber band piercing in their cheek and everything in between, you know, like it's, uh, it, it's insane. It's insane. You know? And like, I don't go to reptile shows anymore. I only go to the reptile super show. I don't foresee myself going to reptile shows other than that. And the only reason why I go to that is because, uh, it's local and well, my very good friend owns it. My best friend owns it. So, uh, but I mean, it's, 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 it's just crazy to see the, the just the variety of, of demographic that comes through the door. It's literally everyone, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's just, I mean, and again, that's no reflection on anybody. It's just, it's interesting to see how it became the, the appeal became so broad and like going back a while, the, the, I think that there's, there's two different, tell me how you feel about this. There's, there's two different, uh, I guess, attitudes out there. There's the attitude that, you know, going back a long time ago, that exotic pets like you know frogs, rept, you know frogs, snakes, uh, lizards, whatever, that they were, you know, unusual. They were odd. They were only things that were kept by very, very small numbers of people, and yeah, and, and that they were inherently like somehow bad. They were kind of like negative, negative pets. They were negative right. animals to keep. They weren't really media friendly. They didn't, you know, they didn't have any of that appeal that like dogs and cats and mammals have. And they always seem to have been managed that way, like through through legislation. And it seems like nowadays the 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 anti reptile and anti herp legislation has gotten so like just brutal in terms of all, yeah. all out bans and and like all this knee jerk legislation. But you, you know, that legislation is going to be affecting millions of people more now yeah. than it would have thirty years ago. That like that's what I don't understand right. is if we can. Um, you know, if if we can regulate domestic animals like livestock, if we can if we can regulate poultry, yeah, and and we can regulate you know the 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 trade of mammals, et cetera. I mean, uh, you know, dogs need to have rabies vaccines, et cetera. Why can't we do that with this? It's not even a new market, but why can't we do that with this? Because it's 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 not just a simple thing anymore. It's expanded to the right. point where it's it's gone way more than I would have ever expected. Well. I have a lot of opinions on this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not going to name names, but you know, the thing is we're not our best message messengers as a hobby. There is uh, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's an odd thing because even within the hobby, everybody clicks up, you know, it's like the snake people are over here and the lizard people are over here and the frog people are over here. And that's one of the things that I've really disliked about the hobby over the years because I'm the kind of person that keeps lizards, snakes, turtles, frogs, newts, whatever, you know? And, uh, I'll tell you, you know, there as a hobby, uh, well in social media, YouTube and all these things have done really bad things for the hobby. In my opinion, uh, there's nobody on the, like, for example, YouTube, there's not a lot of people on there that are promoting this hobby in a responsible 
way. And, you know, I see some things that I find quite alarming, especially on the West Coast, like trends that I don't think they're nationwide trends. I think it's more of like the California thing and the image and all that. It's kind of part of the culture here. Uh, But I've never understood, for example, why as a hobby, we elevate the status of someone who's been bitten by a poisonous snake. Why, Why do we make people who have been bitten by a poisonous snake like a star? You know, I don't understand that. Like, it should be the opposite. Like, the person who's never been bit by a poisonous snake should be, like, the one that's held in in high regard, you know? And we don't do good things. Um, It's an easy target when someone lets a snake out or isn't responsible in their ownership, Um, you know? And you don't don't have an animal that, uh, you know, a lot of people are afraid of them. And... You know, it's like you wouldn't like leave your 50 caliber sitting out on the coffee table for someone to come into contact with. And I don't think that, you know, people should be walking around outside with their retic around their neck. And I know that people seem to like the attention that that garners, but it also doesn't do good things for the hobby. And I, 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 you know, I talk to people and I tell them, like, you're not going to convert a non-reptile loving person into a reptile loving person by shoving a 15 foot reticulated python in their face, uh, showing them a terrarium with blue dart frogs in it, or, you know, a small day gecko or, you know, things of that nature is, is, a, is a more effective way of converting people or at least, you know, getting people uh, to not be afraid, you know, and it's one of the things that I, you know, bothers me the most is like, I don't want people to be afraid of reptiles and amphibians uh, for, for for nothing to do with legislation. I just don't want people to be afraid of them. And uh, a lot of it is a triggering fear of something that was done to them by some kid, you know, or relative when they were a child. Um, and I, I think that people aren't respectful of that. It's kind of like, you know, I wouldn't walk, like I don't have one right now, but I've had big scary dogs in the past. You know, I wouldn't walk a press a canario down a, a, a busy street because I'm aware that a lot of people would be frightened of that, you know? And uh, I think that people don't weigh out the benefit and detriment of their actions sometimes. And I think that when you own things like a Cobra or a retic or a big monitor, I think you have to be super duper extra over the top responsible. You know, and I'm not an anti anything. Like I believe that people should be able to own an alligator if they want to, as long as that thing never escapes and bothers your neighbor. You know, I mean, that's just my opinion. And I also think that it's a little too easy for people to buy things. It's, it's way too easy for you to buy a Cobra. You know, you shouldn't be able to just buy a Cobra and have it shipped to you. Like, you know, there's like, there's something that's a little off in that to me. Like people should, you know, if you have to be a registered gun owner or get a driver's license or things like that, I think that when you're dealing with an animal that's that dangerous, I think that uh, you should have to go through some type of training and certification to be able to legally own them. And I think that you should be able to legally own them if you're responsible enough to do so. So I think that's, I think that's, you know, and that makes for great press. Cobra gets loose. Man who's illegally keeping, you know, all these snakes. Uh, I mean, you can argue whether or not the, the laws are, you know, appropriate or fair, but 
regardless, it makes for great sensationalism and headlines, you know, and it's, uh, we have these politicians that latch onto this stuff and, uh, you know, they run with it and a lot of it dies. Luckily, luckily, a lot of the stuff that gets, you know, it's like a, 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 you know, they do it for, for press, you know, and, uh, nothing ever really comes of it. It makes a headline and then, you know, kind of disappears, but a lot of it doesn't disappear. Yeah. I mean, when I was young, when I was in my early twenties, I did, um, I did some copy editing for a, a local paper, which was not really anything special, but yeah, you had, you had to pick and choose stories and whatnot that would draw the reader's attention because you want to get the reader's attention because that's what sells I mean, well, it's not, no one really reads newspapers anymore, but no, that's what's gonna, now. yeah, that's what's going to get you <laughs> side traffic. And it's almost like, like people have asked me in the, because I don't, I don't keep anything really like large and I, I never did because I just, I felt like I really couldn't, not that I couldn't handle it. I just felt that I, I, I don't think that I would have been able to give the animal the, the right amount of space and, and care. And then, I mean, frankly, for I me, mean, for me, it would have just kind of become like, you know, like, like, like a pain in the ass. I, I never had anything I couldn't manage because like, well, what do I do if this thing gets huge and something happens to me? Like th- then what do I yeah. do? You know what I mean? And I feel like, like what you said earlier about fear. I mean, people have to understand something and this is something that I I had some discussions with people a while back. I was, I was taking an online course and um, part of the assignment was to post some, uh, you know, some things on like a, it's like a private type of forum situation and not, not like, um, you know, like guns blazing to start arguments or anything like that. Just basically to start, you know, high level discussion. And some of the people's posts were, how do I get my aunt to like snakes? Or how do I get my cousin to hold my bearded dragon? And I started thinking about it and I realized, you know what, like you really can't force someone to like these things. And it's really not right to do so. I mean, like I have people like, like, look, like, you know, my kids have friends over, you know, obviously I, I have a lot of frogs. I have two big, scary dogs, but I understand that that's not, you know, every, and not everyone's comfortable that with that, you know? So I'm not right. going to like, you know, take out a frog or, or a snake or whatever and like shove it in someone's face and say, oh, you have to like this. Like, right. no, I, I, I tell people, I say, look, you know, if this if this is outside of your comfort zone, I, I respect that and I understand that because it's the same as you trying to force me to do something that I'm scared of. You know, like like I'm not going skydiving. <laughs> you know what I mean? Ditto, ditto. But, but the point is, <laughs> look, I, I I understand people like to do that. That's that's their right. They should they should have their right. It, it can be dangerous if it's not responsible. But again, it's 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 the same logic. So where do you draw the line? You know, I just I I, I don't I, I agree with you that I don't think you can have that irresponsible mindset and have that be the the face of the hobby because it, it, it's if that's the face of the hobby then it's ultimately going to be detrimental to all of us who who really have a serious vested interest in that well there's you know i see two trends happening simultaneously in the hobby and uh you know like i said part of this is like a west coast thing but i see two like almost like wildly divergent trends and one trend is that we are going hardcore in the, you know, like pet. Well, I guess it would be three trends. So you have the, the naturalistic planted display thing, you know, the, the, the terrarium paludarium thing is blown up uh, to the point where even Exoterra now is making a turnkey dart frog terrarium, you know, 
and uh, which is crazy because it's going to be something you can pick up at a pet store. And instead of buying something, drilling the tank, you know, modifying this, all that, whatever. So you have that. So that should tell you something about the trends <clears throat> that the, the company Hagen is making that product. Uh, then you have this like pet, pet reptile craze where people want like a pet white's tree frog or a pet bearded dragon or whatever, right? And then there's this really strange thing uh, where we're promoting like crocodile monitors, water monitors, and retics as, and Aldabra tortoises as like a pet that you should own. And I'm watching, for example, Aldabra tortoise babies just flooding the market. And I'm thinking, what in the world are all you people doing with these Aldabra tortoises? Where are you going to put it? You know, I mean, I know you've got some years to worry about that, but eventually you're going to have to worry about it. Is that going to be the next sulcata tortoise, which is going to be banned? I mean, at the rate sulcatas are going, they're going to be on the injurious wildlife list like tegus and everything else. And so, and then why are we promoting a reticulated python and a water monitor as like a pet that people, like the average person should own? And a croc monitor, don't even get me started. I mean, those things can cause like, in, like insane damage if they bite you. Just a quick bite can kill you. You know, they hit an artery, you're done. And uh, we're promoting these things as like uh, animals that like just average people should have. And it's kind of uh, unsettling to me. And... I mean, I like big water monitors, you know, but it's like, you know, I don't want to name names, but, you know, it's like, hey, look at my retic biting me, posted by someone who is also by my baby retics. Like, how are you promoting baby retics uh, to sell as a pet and then also showing pictures of adult retics biting you? <laughs> it's like kind of, you would think it'd be counterproductive. Like there's nothing to me exciting about someone getting getting bitten, wrapped up by a an 18 foot long snake, and the majority of these people don't have the experience. I don't I don't see that making a lot of sense either. But I it's mean, it's it's all over the place. I mean, you know, these these uh, water monitors and retics and Aldabra tortoises are like trending huge in the hobby right now. I never in my life thought I would. <laughs> I see the day where something like that happens. I just, I know I, I keep, I keep dating myself, but I mean, I remember and it's when, happening. Yeah. I just remember the, the big, <laughs> the biggest thing was, was like Savannah monitors in the nineties. Like, wow, yeah. I got this huge. And then you had like white throat and black throat monitors. Like, Oh, I got this yeah. huge monitor. And I was like, but yeah, I mean, black throats can get pretty darn big. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I mean, here, here in New York, everything is right. I, I don't even want to get into it, you know, but, but that doesn't necessarily fix anything because right. I mean, People are just going to do it illegally anyway. I mean, how many times has somebody found a tiger in an apartment in New York or an alligator? Yeah, more than more in than New York City. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, more than we'd like to admit. But right, I uh, I hate to take the rights away from people who are responsible. And and I mean, look, I, I just want to put this in perspective. I mean, if you're out there and you're you're listening, understand that this is two guys talking about this. But and that I love water monitors. 
And I love croc monitors, but I'm not going to play with one if I own one. It's going to sit there and get fed. Yeah, I don't think I would either. <laughs> I, I, I just, I just want to put this in context that this is yeah. we're not trying to attack anyone here in particular. Definitely it's just, not. My, my my thought process has always been, look, if you can handle it, I don't really see a reason not to be able to have it. I that's just my feeling about things in general. But I mean, exactly. I, I like to think that I ch- I exercise my choice not to keep certain things. But I appreciate the right that I can if I wanted to. You know what I mean? I I, I don't have yeah. certain things because I don't I can't handle them. I know that. I know my limitations yeah. and I know what my comfort zone is. But mm-hmm. someone who can handle that situation, someone who can provide the proper care and, and be responsible about it, I'd hate to take that person's responsibility away. But again, there's there's it's like cars, you know what I mean? How many people get killed by cars every year? But cars are still cars are cars are still legal. Of course, but you know, hey, a sixty-year veteran of this hobby got nailed by a croc monitor a few months ago, and you know it was a really serious bite. And now even he's like, "Hey, I'm not going to be playing with my croc monitors anymore." And uh, like, I'm not against it at all. Like, I would own crocodile monitors. I have the space to do so. I have nothing. I mean, I it's something I've thought about. However. I don't, I also, I don't interact with animals the way that other people do. Like my animals, I treat my animals like it's a tropical fish tank. I really do not handle animals or pet them or hold them. It's just not something that I derive any real pleasure from. I, I like to observe them and watch them and things of that nature, but I really don't interact with reptiles, you know, get it. I have, I have a dog or, you know, other things, you know, to fulfill that need. And you know, also with the types of animals that I've typically kept in my lifetime, most of them aren't really handleable animals anyway, you know? Yeah, I, I know. I, I'm I'm the same way. I I mean, I understand people have different... Oh, I get it. Yeah. I mean, we throughout history, human beings have had this yeah. odd relationship with animals. I mean, it, it's not like, you know, gazelle go out and like cuddle with porcupines because they find... Right. You know, it, it's... Uh, everyone has their own approaches and their own ideas about stuff but i mean i'm I'm kind of along the same way i'm I'm a look but don't touch type of person i I like to keep stuff to a minimal other than just like basic conditioning and 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 and, and enrichment yeah but i mean i I breed a lot of newts and frogs and small obscure lizards and emerald tree boas and things that you just don't really handle but i also produce a lot of white tree frogs that people have as family pets you know, and they put cowboy hats on them and take Instagram pictures of them and all that other stuff, you know. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, hey, to each his own. <laughs> yeah, I, I, my, uh, my wife and my kids, they saw, they, like, why are we putting cowboy hats on this frog? I'm like, uh, it's not, 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 I mean, my not kids, my, thing, my but... kids play with the animals. They don't put cowboy hats on anything, but my kids play with certain animals. And I I love the fact that they like interacting with them, you know, like I, I, I like that. It's just not something that I've ever been a big person, you know, that I've always been the type of person that would walk through a rainforest and look at things and not like hold them and take a picture of it. You know, that's just not my, my way. Yeah. I like getting, I just, I I like to take pictures of things within, within reason. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of like picking stuff up too, because. No. Yeah. I, I don't like well, most animals don't really most animals don't really like it as much as you think they do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think I think in general that the 
given the fact that amphibians are generally known to be not as receptive to handling as, as other animals, I think that from the amphibian hobby, we're all kind of on the same yeah, I'd say for the most part that you really there really isn't any benefit to handling these things, but no, I mean maybe white tree frogs would be the only thing I could say is like the only real pet frog that in in that regard that people could hold. But even then, like you know, they don't really like it as as much as your brain tells you that they like it. They don't. Yeah, I've I've just like. I'm not. I don't hold my white tree frogs, but sometimes when I'm no. you know, I'm doing maintenance, I'll I'll, I'll take well, it out or if yeah, like one of my to. yeah like someone's like one of my kids' friends they they want to see it, um, I'll just take it out for a couple of seconds. Sure. But, I mean they're not the most. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, they're not the most uh, uh, athletic <laughs> frogs. So no, they call you know they're yeah definitely dump, dumpy tree frogs when they when they jump <laughs> if they go to jump off your hand. They splat when they hit the ground. They don't really. There's nothing delicate about a white tree frog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bulldozers. That, <laughs> that's that's my fear is that in the act of handling, if a frog does jump off and, and injures itself, I, I I I would you know you, I would be responsible for that. So that's something that I try to avoid. But I uh, I, I want to talk about something that you and I had talked uh, like a couple of weeks ago, and this was kind of where we wanted to go with this. Yeah. The concept of ethical breeding. So, mm-hmm. I mean, as the hobby has progressed, the concept of ethical breeding has gone along with it. Do you want to share some of your thoughts and your opinions on uh, what you consider to be ethical breeding and or what you think ethical breeding should be? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I can just give my perspective. I, I think everyone's definition of what ethical breeding is is kind of subjective. Um, you know, <clears throat> uh, there's there's terms that, I mean, I'll just be very, very frank. Uh, there's terms that I've always disliked. I dislike the term conservation through captive breeding. I think that's like people's way of like kind of disingenuously convincing themselves that what they're doing isn't bad. So they're like, because you're not really conserving anything by captive breeding anything. I mean, we could say, okay, I mean, if that were the case, then why are, why, why are red-eyed tree frogs still brought in uh, as imports? Why are white's tree frogs, uh, being brought in as imports uh so you're not really conserving much even you know there's there there are animals out there that are produced in very large numbers and it is absolutely not necessary to import that species anymore uh white tree frogs red-eyed tree frogs look at like uh uh dender babies you know uh like tinctorious, right? Like there are still tinctorious coming in as imports, like out of Suriname and stuff like that, right? Like why do we, if if that term was a valid term, then, you know, it's like the only animals that are captive bred that are not imported are is because that country shut down exports. It's not because you relieved the pressure on the population so much that, you know, they just there's no need to import them anymore. There's, there's no country that, that exports uh, and stopped exporting a species because so many are produced in captivity that nobody wants to buy the wild cots. And so I don't, I don't believe in that phrase. Um, and, you know, I, I think that ethical breeding means, you know, taking care of the animals properly, doing uh, things that, you know, some people may not like, 
uh, I see a lot of things that I'm just like, why would you not cull that animal? You know, and people, a lot of people don't even know the term cull, you know, but like if you have an animal born with no eyes, I think there's a humane way to deal with that. And, you know, virtue signaling on social media uh, is not the way I would handle that situation. I would euthanize the animal humanely and, you know, not, not exploit it for that purpose. And, you know, I think that, uh, and of course my kids, you know, if I have to do something like that, which is very infrequent, but you know, if, if an animal sustains an injury or something like that, you know, my kids give me a hard time, you know, they're like, Oh, what if one of us wasn't born perfect? Would you do that to us? And, you know, of course I say, yeah, of course I would, (laughs) but I'm joking. Uh, And so I think that producing the best quality animals that you can by giving them the best care, breeding for uh, quality and not for quantity. uh, I think that, uh, you know, respecting the market and uh, kind of like finding, uh, you know, the compromise within yourself. Because there's days where I'm just like, why am I doing this? Why do I do this? Why am I keeping animals in cages? I should just get rid of everything and move out of the country and just go live somewhere where I can look at animals every day, you know, but I like breeding them and I like keeping them. And so what I have to do is I have to compromise and do what I feel is ethical. And I guess what that means for me is uh, being able to look at myself in the mirror and being happy with, uh, you know, who I am as a, as a breeder. So, you know, I try to give, proper information to people. Uh, and you know, I try to breed with integrity and with intention, you know, like I, I said, uh, recently I'm, I'm, well, I mean, I've, it's kind of just happened. Like I'm no, never going to breed normal whites, tree frogs. And like, there's no need to do that. And I, I don't want to breed any species and maintain its status in the pet trade as a throwaway animal. I have strong beliefs about certain things within reason, but I don't believe there should be a $5 wholesale or, or $10 retail animal. I, I mean, outside of maybe tropical fish, but you know, when it comes to reptiles and amphibians, I just don't think there should be such a thing. And so I'm not going to breed like wholesale wise tree frogs for $6 a piece. I'm not going to do it because it's too much work for the money. Also, there shouldn't be like I call that puppy mill breeding of, of frogs. And I'm not going to participate in that. And the pet trade can just, uh, you know, sell animals to people that, that they actually care enough about the money they spent, which is unfortunately the reality, that they care enough about the money they spent to properly take care of the animal that they bought. So many times in my life, I've watched people say, oh, we'll get this green and all, you know, and if you can keep that alive, then we'll get you this more expensive animal. And then they set the kid up for failure because they buy him a critter keeper. They throw this anole in it and it's inevitably going to die. And in oh, no big deal. We only sp- we only spent eight dollars on it or ten dollars on it. And that's that's a that's a mindset we need to, like, really steer very far away from. And like, it kills me that red-eyed tree frogs are 25 to $30 retail. This iconic animal that everybody in the world has pretty much seen a picture of, you know, arguably one of the most beautiful animals on the planet. And you can go buy one for $30. 
the price, I mean, it's, it's cheaper to go to freaking uh, Chili's for dinner. Like, I don't know why anybody would want to go to Chili's, but you know, it is. And that's, there's something wrong with that. So I think that, uh, you know, not making animals so cheap that people don't care about losing the money if it dies kind of is something that I, I wish that we would move towards that, you know, and that's not a, a profit thing. Cause I mean, I make most of the money that I make off of not super expensive animals, you know? So it's, you know, there's that. And just, uh, you know, there's, there's more than the ethics of breeding. There's just the ethics of interacting with each other and the hobby too, you know, like there's a, there's a, uh, like a code that you, that I think the hobby should adhere to. And it's just too competitive in a lot of ways. And the competition is about ego and about making sales. And then that causes problems with the animals themselves too. Cause then you lose sight of the fact that these are actually animals and not just some commodity, you know, it's a living, breathing thing. You know, it's interesting that you, you bring up price point because that's a question that I, I always ask people when I have them on the show, especially obviously people who, who deal with animal sales and breeding. I often wonder if a high price point maintains some of the integrity of the hobby. And, and by that, I mean, I, I just, 1000%. Yeah. I mean, just not, I don't, I, I don't mean it like as, as a, you know, as a snobby or, or an arrogant way. I don't mean that at all. What I mean is if you're going to invest in something like the analogy you used before about having a green anole, I mean, to be honest, I think that having a $5 green anole that's pulled from the wild and stressed out, I think that animal is a, a lot harder to take care of and keep healthy than say, uh, you know, well, uh, you know, $150, uh, you know, sub adult Azurius. I, I think that it's, it's much harder, but you're right. That, well, it that, is, and it'd be more expensive to set it up properly than it would most reptiles and amphibians. And that's, that's the, that's the, the part where people get, uh, detached, you know, because in order to maintain that $5 and all, which they're not $5 anymore, like when we were kids, but, uh, <laughs> in order to maintain that animal properly and let it live its life, it's going to cost more than that $10 or $15 critter keeper to keep it right. You know, you have to keep them in a terrarium with like you would a dart frog with, with you know, more ventilation and, and they don't want to spend the money. I mean, well, that's been something historically, you know, but, uh, that's also changing a lot too. That's changing a lot too. I mean, I see a lot of people buying a hundred dollar animal for their kid. And I'm just like, when I was a kid, I remember spending my first, like buying my first $100 animal back, back in the you know late eighties, early nineties. And I was, that was an obscene amount of money. Of course, minimum wage was $3 and 50 cents an hour too. <laughs> Yeah, I remember. I, I <laughs> yeah, I remember. My first job was four twenty five an hour. Yeah. I mean, you know, gas was sixty nine cents a gallon, but you know, it's uh, it's just uh, remember, I'm a Kansas boy, but uh, you know, I see a lot of people spending more money in in getting away from that uh thing too. But I mean, I think that it has to. A lot of it just has to do with you know the core of who you are as a person and how do you want to represent what you do uh, as a person through the animals that you produce, you know, and I, I kind of like put a lot of pressure on myself to produce high quality animals. And uh, it's just something that I've always tried to do. Yeah. I feel like there's way too many disposable animals out there. And, and even, even with dart frogs, like 
Aratus. Aratus, for example, it, it's I know Aratus is a, a lot of people's beginner, and I think that they're really just a beginner species because they're so cheap. And like you said, it's like, oh well, if I fail, what am I out? You know, am I out thirty right. bucks? But no big deal. It just it just seems like if you're gonna if you're gonna invest in something, at least invest in it in it right. I mean, not there's nothing wrong with yeah. Aratus, but if no, you're gonna... I mean, especially with some of the different forms that are around now, you know, like the all gold ones and some of the. I mean, there's just some amazing erratus out there. You know, it's like they're finally getting their due, you know, their due credit. But I will say, too, that, you know, regardless of how this might sound, um, I would much rather the throwaway species be captive bred than be wild caught. I would much rather people have that attitude towards a captive bred animal than an animal that's taken out of the wild. You know, at least it's not as impactful in a negative way. You know, I have the same I have the same philosophy about the the fur and skin trade. Like I would never wear a dead animal's fur. I'm just not something that would ever appeal to me. But if people are going to insist on doing that, I would much rather them wear captive bred, you know, dead animals than wild caught dead animals. You know, it's it's just I feel like it's more a more realistic you know, viewpoint since they're not ever going to stop wearing fur anyway. So, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I'd rather people buy a captive bred crested gecko than smuggle a wild caught crested gecko. There's no point. That's that, that goes on. I mean, the crested geckos are everywhere. It doesn't, but you know, every once in a while, somebody will go do something for genetic purposes. You know, like I'll tell you right now, the greatest gift to any big time, long time bearded dragon breeder, the greatest gift they could ever have is to somebody to smuggle them a wild caught bearded dragon from Australia. The genetic impact uh, of of that individual animal on a breeding program would be massive. Yeah, I can only imagine with something like that. You know? Well, while we're talking about breeding, I, I wanted to ask you your thoughts on this. As the amphibian hobby evolves, our understanding of amphibian behave, uh, behaviors, I mean, it should evolve along along with it because obviously there's a, a lot of different yeah. dynamics and caveats to different species and even, even different locales and the same species. Mm-hmm. I, I think that a lot of people go into the hobby with the aspiration of, of breeding and producing, but I, I feel like something often gets lost along the way. I mean, can you give us a rundown of some of the most like common misconceptions about amphibian breeding, either in general or specifics, and what the truth of it is? Well, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's easier than people think, and in other ways, it's harder. And I mean, I've watched over the years, you know, people come and go in and out of this hobby. And, you know, it's like, you know, I, I started out in this hobby as like a really hardcore well i mean my initial start was with like tricolored king snakes and things like that but you know i was always a really hardcore gecko and obscure lizard keeper but i always had amphibians and so i've seen a lot of people come and go like i mean even at one time i had you know 270 species of gecko and over 90 genera at one time in my collection of just geckos And, you know, but I also had frogs and I also had newts and I also had this and I also had that. And, uh, I, I, the biggest problem that, that I think people don't understand is it's a hell of a lot easier to breed something than it is to sell all the babies you produce. Like as important, uh, as producing the product 
is having the outlets and the relationships to be able to sell them. And, you know, it used to be that um, you used to have to earn your reputation by actions and hard work. And there was a lot more respect involved uh, in the way that we treated each other. Well, that's just a societal thing, too. But uh, and now it just seems like uh, the easiest people think the easiest way to sell stuff is to, like, tear down your competition instead of just producing a, a good or better product. I'm one of those people that loves competition. I think competition is great. I think it grows uh, the customer base. I think it grows uh, people's exposure and interest. And I just like competition. I'm, I've never been afraid of competition. And, you know, I think that uh, people don't realize that you can have a job and you can be a hobby breeder. And you can hit the local shows like, you know, the ones that used to be in Kansas City where I'm from. And, you know, you go down to Oklahoma City and you go to St. Louis. And you run these little local small time show circuits. And it's a fun way for you to have social interaction with people, even though that is not why I do it. But I understand that that's what people do. And they love to go to a show and, you know, make $1,500 in a weekend and, you know, it gets maybe get a couple of new animals and say hi to all their friends and and go home and that's like you know a great way to make to supplement your income and have fun and a hobby but to do it at the level like that i do it i remember the day that i had to stop working because i used to do a lot of construction when i was younger and it's been many many years it's been over two decades and i remember the day where i was like i've been making more money off of animals than I do working and you know it just became a life uh, I had it's it, it was a choice I had to make and it's a lifestyle and it's like you eat breathe sleep sweat everything that's all I do and I mean even at the time I was a huge car guy and you know I used to build custom cars one of my cousins was a really famous car builder and I had to stop going to the street rod nationals which I went to every year and doing all these things and the the amount of like commitment that it takes and focus and hard work is something that most people aren't willing to to give and it's also not something most people have the ability to do because of a job or their family obligations and so they don't realize like what it takes to to be able to do that and also there's a lot of negative that comes with it too you know like the more the bigger you get the more negative you know you receive too and so <clears throat> i don't know it's just uh it's a lot you know i couldn't even give you a number of how many animals i produce in a year but it's you know many 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 thousands and it's a lot of work and it's a lot of stress Plus, you also deal with species that are primarily explosive breeders. I mean, for the for the most part, dar, uh, not well, for the most part, like dart frogs aren't explosive breeders. I mean, they'll produce a lot of clutches during the year. But I mean, for the species that yeah. you work with, like I white, mean, I breed a lot of that stuff too, though. You know, like I mean, I have a lot of, you know, that's the thing about a lot of newts. You know, of all the newts that there are, of like actual newts, like things that are not you know, ampistomatidae, like not, not ampistoma, like spotted salamanders or axolotls or stuff like that. A lot of newts breed 
and they produce for months off of, you know, they don't lay all their eggs in one clutch, except for like a Spanish ribbon. That's the only newt that I can think of off the top of my head that lays one big clutch in one night. And, you know, well, rib newts can produce, you know, multiple clutches a year, but most newts like the Nerurgus or crested newts or, you know, even firebelly newts, most newts, they produce, uh, you know, like three eggs, you know, then no egg for a day, then the next day they'll lay two eggs and they won't lay for two or three days. And then they'll lay like 10 eggs in one night. And they do that for like two or three months. And the numbers are, are greater than what a lot of dart frogs could produce. But you know, there's some dart frogs that are highly productive. Um, you know, so, but yeah, you know, when you're dealing with like whites, yeah, all of a sudden in one day, you know, you have 2000 tadpoles to take care of from one female frog, you know, and, uh, maintaining that many babies as they're coming out of the water, you know, it's like, I mean, I, like right now I have a lot of, uh, <clears throat> right now I have a lot of anatheca, the crown tree frog and they breed like philoderma do, you know, they, they produce small numbers consistently, uh, you know, and you just always have babies coming out of the water. It's just not a lot of them. And sometimes that's harder than having something that comes out all at once, you know, because then the size difference between the three that came out today and the three that come out next week, I can't keep them together. So sometimes it's harder to do that, you know? That's a good point. I didn't, I didn't even think about that. I um, I mean, I, well, originally I, I was just thinking about like White's tree frogs having thousands and thousands of, of tadpoles and like what, what a hassle that is. But you're you're right. You, you make a good point. I didn't I didn't even think about that, having, you know, just just generations that are kind of staggered, so you can't raise them communally the way you would with other species. No, I, I, that's interesting. I didn't even think about it that way. And even whites do that. I mean, you'll have whites tree frogs. They don't all come out of the water as frog with you know in the same day, you know. So like you'll have these frogs that are that I could never put in with their siblings because they'd get eaten, you know. But I mean, you have to think like as it sits right now. <clears throat> As it sits right now, I have baby frogs, tadpoles, froglets, whatever, of at least 25 species of, of frog. I mean, everything from, you know, Phylomedusa to Agalichnes to, I mean, I have reed frog tadpoles and babies, Anatheca, you know, two species of Latoria. I mean, I have a lot of frogs at all times you know a bunch of philoderma species you know and then i have you know a ton of like newts i mean luckily uh the newt breeding season ended and i'm almost sold out of everything from last season but everything's starting to come into breeding condition again but also you have to understand like that's just what i do so like to me like that's just my life so it doesn't really i i adjusted to this being my life so many years ago that it's not some big thing that I'm going to suffer burnout from. And that's what a lot of people do. They burn out because they don't realize like how much work it is. And then when it's new and it's fun, it's like, yeah, it's easy. You know, you it's when you're motivated, uh, it's easy to keep it going and exciting. But after a couple of years, you know, people, people just kind of fade away a lot, you know, I mean, you've seen it, I'm sure. I mean, how many times have you seen this person pops up and they, They've, you know, got a banner and they've got a company name and a website and a, 
and, uh, you know, an embroidered shirt with their company name on it. And, you know, they got all the fancy acrylic displays. And then, you know, three years later, they're gone. Yeah. Never that, to be seen again. No, that's, that's, that's true. It, it, it really does take a lot of discipline and a lot of, de- a lot of dedication to be, you know, and sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. I've sacrificed yeah. a lot in my life. Boy, if people only knew. <laughs> well, you, you had, I mean, you had a, a situation today where you, you lost power, right? At your facility. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> that's the other thing people Stressful. don't realize is that like, if you want to have an operation that's, that's <laughs> big, I mean, what, how do you like, you want to tell the listeners like what happened just so I mean, you get an idea of how, how significant something like this actually is and like what it must've been like to get everything up online again. Well, I tell you for one, no orders could go out. That's an issue. Uh, couldn't print labels. Uh, and, but that's minimal, you know, most people are not, you know, most people are really understanding. Of course, there's always the, the one, you know, that's not, um, and, but like, for example, it wasn't a super hot day, so that was good. Um, my biggest fear with a power outage is, uh, if it gets too hot, um, you know, if I lived in Kansas city still, it would be that things got too cold. I mean, I had an ice storm in the early nineties that took out some really rare, expensive geckos. I mean, we, I was out of power for almost two weeks and it was brutally cold. And, you know, I don't have that problem in San Diego, but yeah, I mean, it, it, luckily it wasn't a hot day. Uh, my, my biggest fear of a power outage on a day like this would have been to crash the blackworm colony. Uh, cause I have, you know, 10 pounds of blackworms right now. And if, you know, they went bad, I'd be in real big trouble. Uh, luckily I could get two more pounds, you know, next Tuesday, uh, but you know, it's a lot of work. If you have 10 pounds of blackworms go down in there, it's not a pretty, it's not a pretty thing. Um, and you know, with the heat, you know, the newts would be a concern, but I, the way they're set up, like they could actually handle it being really hot outside and electricity being off. So that's not a big concern, but you know, just the stop of a day of work is a big problem. And then having to reset timers, uh, and things of that nature. But yeah, it's a lot. It's, you know, and then wildfires are a huge problem in California and that's super stressful, like really stressful. I can imagine that not being something that you want to have. I mean, you know, a, a no, storm I had, is to, one I thing. had to evac. I had to evac every animal on the property two years ago. Really? Could just because yep. of, of the fires. Where did you there go? There was a fire very close. Like you could see it, you know, on the next hill over. It was really close. So I took everything to my house and put it in the garage in containers. And there were some casualties because that's just inevitable. But, you know, there's a lot more animals and species that stand fire now than there were then. You know, at that time there was, you know, just, you know, maybe 10 to 15 species all combined. And now, you know, there's well over, you know, probably 150. Yeah, I mean, I was just doing, I was doing some work downstairs in my, my frog room and I had just bought a larger snake cage and I'm, I'm doing the modification. Now I'm like, I'm pulling everything out. I'm like, man, I'm like, I couldn't imagine having to do this like on a regular basis. I mean, it took me like an hour and a half just to like lift the, like turn the thing over, drill a couple of holes to get like lighting in there. And then I had to pull all the timers out. I'm like, man, like I got to reset all this. And I started thinking, I'm like, wow, 
Like Jay had a power outage earlier. I can only imagine the nightmare that he's that he's going through with all of his enclosures and everything. Well, you know, and the other thing is, is I make a lot of my own enclosures. I mean, that's the other part of it. Like, you know, I build, I have to make my own enclosures. I learned a long time ago that people don't make cages or aquariums the size that I need. And so, I mean, I, I've been making my own aquariums, terrariums. I make cages out of PVC. I make cages out of glass. I make aquariums. I, I mean, I do all of that. And I have to build them to my specifications and what my needs are. So, you know, I'm constantly doing stuff like that. I think that's another big part of the hobby that kind of goes underrepresented, just how particular you can be about something. Like, I, mean, I don't know if that's just me. I, I have some kind of really compulsive tendencies, but I just, I can't stand it when I can't get something exactly right. Yeah. Like like the, the the lighting for this enclosure, I spent like probably six days online until i finally found the light that i was i was happy mm -hmm. with and it's just yeah. like that that diy aspect of it i feel like you know, like you said earlier yeah. about the, the the reptile market kind of putting products out there that i guess can cater to the largest you know the, the largest uh, right i mean it's one thing right it's one thing like to put one of these cages i'm not going to single anybody out I mean, we didn't have cages like that when I was a kid. Like, they didn't exist. You were getting an aquarium with a screen top, and that was it. Uh, or you had to make your own cage out of wood. And so now the cages they have, I get it, you know. Uh, they're great cages for someone to have in their room. They're a great way to make a terrarium in your living room or in your kid's room or your den. Or I mean, do people have dens anymore? But, but for me, as a breeder, a large-scale breeder, that doesn't work for me and the, I need efficiency and I need continuity and I have to put a lot of energy into, I have to, I put a lot of energy into the setups because they, they save me a lot of time down the road. You know, they make it, they make it so I can efficiently maintain a large collection by myself. Uh, Whereas I wouldn't be able to. I mean, I was making a joke like a week ago. I don't even remember who I was talking to, but they were. I was with them in person, and I was laughing. Oh, I know where I was. I was at a small reptile show, and I was laughing about like these guys I used to know that were gecko keepers that are even still around. Some of them, and they would be like, you know, how do you keep all these species, you know, by yourself? And I go, well, because I don't keep everything in critter keepers. And I'm like, the amount of time it takes you to take that off the shelf open the lid, water something, feed something, you know, put the lid back on and put it back on the shelf. I could have fed 10 cages with my cage setups. And so efficiency is huge for me. It's allowed me to keep large numbers of animals, you know, practically and efficiently. Whereas other people like spend a lot of time doing things that I would never do. It would drive me nuts to do that. So I just learned at a young age to not do that. And I seek, if I want to learn how to do something, I find a way to, to do it. And, you know, I, I remember learning how to cut glass because I was like, I can't work with the cages that are put on the market. I have to make my own. And I was taught, I was taught how to cut glass by a guy who was, uh, would go around and restore stained glass art in like cathedrals. And I just gave him a, I mean, I was barely old enough to drink if that and then i he asked me some for some really obscure brand of beer 
that you couldn't find. He's like, if you go get me a 12 pack of this, I'll, I'll teach you how to cut glass. And I did. So, you know, it's just, that's just the way that I've always worked personally, but you know, I, I have to make my own cages most of the time because what I need it to be isn't, isn't made. It's interesting what you just said about, uh, I mean, even though it's, it's not necessarily animals per se, but like with, with glass, that teacher student dynamic that, um, I mean, we were kind of talking off air about this before, about how uh, some people come into, and not everybody, but some people kind of come into the, the hobby with this chip on their shoulders, like they know everything already. And I was just, you know, just curious, like, it, there's a lot of good information, a lot of bad information out there. What do you feel about people who are kind of like armchair experts who, you know, come into the hobby leave a digital footprint where they make all sorts of claims and which, which may not be true. And mm-hmm. then they kind of leave the hobby or whatever. I mean, how do you, I mean, you've been in the game a long, <laughs> long time. How, yeah. how do you like, what do you make of, of situations like that? Like armchair experts and people well, who are like, you know, keyboard warriors. I think that, um, they create a lot of problems and, you know, I, I, I have so many scenarios that I've, that I've dealt with, in my history and you know like one of one of the things like you know that initiated my contact with you you know a month or two ago that kind of like was the catalyst for this was i i had a situation where i had sold someone hit me up they wanted a sexable uh white uh, a sexable male white tree frog of a certain morph and i just we don't i don't sell sexable frogs anymore um there, if I'm going to keep something to where it's sexable, it's going to stay. It was kept for a purpose, and that's to be a breeder. But I said, you know, look, I have one from last year. It was the last of a clutch, and I've been on the fence about whether or not I want to keep it as a breeder or sell it. And, you know, I said, um, I will, uh, I said, I'll let you have it for, I forgot what the amount of money was. It wasn't really that much, it was like $150 or something. And, um, I said, it's a young male and I sold it to them and they got it. And then they immediately complained, this animal's this big. And, you know, how do you know it's a male? It doesn't have toe pads and you know, this, that, and the other thing. And I said, okay, well, first of all, what constitutes a wise tree frog being an adult? Like, what does that mean to you? What does an adult wise tree frog mean to you? Um, it is definitely a male. It, she's, you know, this person said, you know, well, it doesn't even have toe pads. I said, well, that's not how you sex a white tree frog. <laughs> like if you used, you know, toe pads or I'm sorry, uh, 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 nuptial pads, of course it has toe pads. It's a white tree frog. It, it doesn't have nuptial pads. And I said, well, that's not how you sex white tree frogs. And if you're using nuptial pads as a way to sex, uh, to definitively sex white tree frogs, you're going to be wrong a lot because they only have nuptial pads during the breeding season. And I said, that's just not how you sex them. And I said, uh, you know, well, this, this frog is only this many grams. And I said, okay. And <laughs> so like, you know, I was like, I don't understand what your point is. I said, I guarantee you it's a male. In fact, I guarantee it so much that I will buy that frog back from you full price and pay the shipping to send it back if if it's not a male. 
And, you know, I said, stop reading everything, you know, stop reading what people post on the internet. And, you know, there's so many things that so many rabbit holes I can go down here. So keep me, keep me on track. I'll try. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because there's so many different ways that this, you know, uh, kind of trend, you know, how it's exposed in the hobby. And, you know, it started out where we, all we had was listservs and forums and then Facebook came and then Instagram and, and, you know, if you thought forums were bad, things got, you know, exponentially worse with, you know, like the evolution of social media. And I mean, I see things all the time where like someone who is not a, like, let's just use white tree frogs as the, as the, you know, protagonist here. If I see people post, you know, they have a white tree frog lovers page or, you know, all about white tree frogs and they've, you know, got this and got that. And then they post up 10, the 10 things you should feed your, you know, that are okay for your white tree frog or not. And I, I frequently see people post not to feed super worms to animals. And this is the, like one of the biggest myths of the reptile and amphibian hobby. Uh, and I, I've told people this for years and I still, I had to, you know, post on something, um, a couple of months ago, somebody posted not to feed your white tree frog. I said, this is just, uh, an absurdity. Uh, there is nothing wrong with feeding a white tree frog or any other animal, a super worm. Um, they're not going to eat their way out of your animal from inside of that animal's stomach. That just doesn't happen. And people have these anecdotal experiences that, oh, but I found, you know, it was crawling out of its ear. Yeah, because it went in its orifice after your animal was dead or so weak that it was basically dying. And it came out that way. It didn't get eaten and then crawl out from the stomach acid would kill it. Biting it, the, the act of biting the, the superworm in half would kill it. Um, it. It just doesn't happen. And, you know, I have a lot of these people that, that if you buy an animal from me, this is a common thing. They buy an animal from me. And the first thing they do after buying this animal from me is they go ask someone on a forum or on a Facebook page how to take care of it. And I never understood that. And it, it must be a pride thing. Or I really don't know. Why would you not already know how to take care of the animal, for one? For two, why wouldn't you just ask the person that produced the animal how to take care of it? Because, I mean, I, the information I see online that people post about white tree frogs, I can, show, I can say a lot of things that I see are a mistake. People keep their white tree frogs too wet. They keep them too cool. And they don't feed them the right foods. And, you know, that's just, I, people keep white tree frogs all wrong. And that's like, you know, the common information that's posted by people. And uh, I always say, well, have you ever seen babies that this person produced? Where are their babies at? Have you ever seen them selling babies? No, you haven't. Then why are they an expert on white tree frogs? Most people who are internet experts, they, I view them like a kid that did a book report in school. Or did a little research project, you know, like when one of my kids does a research 
project for their school. Uh, like my son did one on golden lion tamarins a couple of years ago. And what did he do? He got on the internet and he searched for information about golden lion tamarins. And then he did a report on golden lion tamarins. But that's not, that doesn't make you an expert. Not, I mean, I really don't like that term because I don't consider myself an expert, but I do consider myself someone with a lot of experience. And so there's a, there's just so much of that in this hobby where people don't want to ask uh, the person that knows like how to take care of them. They would rather ask someone else. And I don't know if it's because they don't want to feel, you know, like st stupid. I mean, I don't know any other way to say it, uh, but there's nothing wrong with being ignorant. Like I'm ignorant of a lot of things. You know, people tend to, I guess, feel threatened when they don't really know too much about something. And ignorance is an interesting word because it, ignorance automatically has a negative connotation. As if and like, it shouldn't, yeah, but yeah, it like, does. I mean, ignorant is just the, the the act of not knowing something. I mean, I'm ignorant yeah. of, of of many things. I I yeah. couldn't couldn't begin to go on. But yeah. uh, I mean, st stupidity on the other hand, <laughs> stupidity is being right. proud of ignorance. And well, and then, you know, there's these big fancy terms like cognitive dissidence or the Dunning-Kruger effect that people can spend some time looking up. And there's so much of that. And we're all guilty of uh, having moments that would fall into the category of the Dunning-Kruger effect. I'm not going to get into what that is, but it's it's basically your an overconfidence to compensate for your ignorance. And um it's like you'll see it with like, well, never mind. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> it's like when you go to like the post office and you ask three different employees three, the exact same question and you get three different answers, you know, and it's like their policy, but they can't just say, I don't know, you know, not to beat up the post office people. I, I'm just using that, that as an example, you know, an analogy, but, but there's so much of that. And while there are different ways to keep animals and not, you know, just one way, like you can keep white street frogs, multiple different setups, but there, there is a, a general guideline that an animal needs to be kept a certain way. You know, like I had a guy, um, like I, I was at this show and I, I went hard on newts. I took a ton of newts to this reptile super show. I took, you know, 10 different species and like over 200 animals and uh, I sold out and that's crazy to me. But I had a guy, one particular guy walked up to me and I kind of just had enough. And he said, uh, he was talking about Nerugus Kaiseri. And he says, uh, can I keep this with my dart frog? Oh my God. And I said, no. And he said, why not? <laughs> oh my God. And I kind of like laid into him. I said, well, because one is a new, a Cites Appendix 1 critically endangered species from the Zagros Mountains in Iran. And the other is a frog from Central or South America. I said, do I really need to explain to you why you can't keep them together? I said, maybe what you should do is go have a, a, some moment of self-reflection and ask yourself why it is that you want to keep them together. You know, and uh, but there's just so much of that in the hobby. Like, why do people want to keep animals together like that uh, outside of like a zoo? I don't have a uh, I'm not a big proponent of cohabitating different species. 
So, like, I mean, I could see it with certain things like terrariums with like certain dart frogs, certain geckos or anoles. I would not have the de desire to do that, but I don't have a big problem with that type of thing. But I do have a big problem with people wanting to keep like newts and fish or dart frogs and newts. It's just like, I don't even know like why I would have to explain that to someone, but, uh, and just his, like this, his kind of arrogant attitude about it, you know? And, uh, every, everybody is like, uh, and then it's like, it, there seems to be another societal trend where everybody feels like they have to prove you wrong or knock you down off of your high horse or whatever, you know? And, uh, that's just their, an insecurity that they're projecting, you know, uh, instead of like just going, I mean, I grew up reading books and learning from people. I had mentors, man. I had people as an adult now looking back that I, I can't even imagine giving that amount of free time to some kid like these guys did to me. You know, they, I mean, they were truly passing along, you know, knowledge and life lessons. And I mean, I think about them sometimes when I, I take someone and I really one-on-one, -on -one, like hardcore, spend a lot of time with someone about a species or something like that. And then I think back of like this guy, Mike Smith, when I was a kid that I used to go to his house and he would take time out of his life, his very busy life with his very beautiful girlfriend and spend hours with me in the basement talking about snakes. <laughs> and it's like, man the generosity of, of, of that guy is basically a saint in my opinion. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's just so much of that in the hobby. Yeah. I think that people really need to understand the, I mean, look, the, the word humility gets, again, just like ignorance gets a very, very negative connotation and, and, you know, humility doesn't automatically imply weakness. You're not a weak person because you don't know something. I mean, we, we were all born into the world completely ignorant of, of, of everything around us. We only know what we were taught and what we experienced. And I feel like going into a situation where you're, you, you really don't know anything. You have to have an air of humility about you. You can't go into it with arrogance. I mean, I don't, I don't, believe in going into a situation with someone who knows more than I do about a particular regardless of whatever it is and telling that person that I know more than he does or you know I don't I don't I don't understand I, I don't see that as being a practical approach to furthering your understanding of something you know by going in and trying to teach the teacher so to speak right I mean but people don't understand like you know I don't feel like it's not my intention to come across as arrogant or to have an ego. I'm actually really low key and low profile for the amount of animals that I keep and what I do. And, but I have worked hard for decades to, to be able to do what I do and to have the experience that I have. And I would love for people to learn from that and gain from that. And, if some people I invest a lot of energy into and some people I don't like at all. And it's all about attitude. And it's like, you know, you don't have to prove anything to anyone. And these are all just animals anyway. You know, no matter how good you are, you're just good at breeding an animal. It just doesn't make you a superhero or a, a star. Like nobody's, nobody's going to give me an Academy award or anything. But you know, when I was a kid, 
uh, I would keep my mouth shut and my ears open. Yeah, no, that was the same, you know? that was the same way with me. Or you would have had your back. People would have turned their back to you. Yeah, you know, and you would have never gotten anywhere. Yeah, no, that's 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 very very true. That's that's definitely but, you know, true. The internet's made the world a very small place, and social media has made this like weird, uh, like it, it's allowed people to be on a level playing field, even though it's not. You know, and it's like. No one is better than another, no human is better than another human, with some exceptions. But some people are better at something than other people are, and some people, you know, have a lot of learning to do. Uh, like you got to crawl before you can walk, you know. Like I didn't jump into the hobby. Like yeah, okay. So I'll use this as an example. As much as I hate, I absolutely hate talking about this species because it is like the number one species that people bug me about. And that's Naltinus, the uh, New Zealand green gecko, right? I've been keeping New Zealand green geckos for well over 20 years. Uh, I'm the only person that's ever imported them post CITES. Uh, like I have a long history with that species, with that genus, and I'm very well known for it. And I cannot tell you how many kids contact me with zero experience asking to buy this gecko, which of which I've only ever sold one in over 20 years. So I've sold one male to one guy and then he got interviewed on YouTube and everybody knows that I sold it to him. He's up in Wisconsin, but like what makes you think that you can just go after like the Holy grail, most sought after animal in captivity with zero experience, you know? And but there's so there's just so much of that. You know, I would have never thought as a 17 year old kid to like, you know, contact, you know, someone for like what would be the equivalent of like a marine iguana or something. You know, I would have I would just never do that. I'm trying to think of like a, a, a good analogy in the dart frog community, you know, like never keeping a dart frog in your entire life before and going after like one of the most sought after, you know, egg obligates that exists or like I've never kept any dart frogs. Why don't I, you know, go get silver stone eye or something, you know, uh, it, it's just funny to me that people want to jump straight to that with no experience. I think that there's a lot of visual media out there and it's Things things are inherently appealing to the eye. I think things appeal to us. It's just the, the way our brains are hardwired, I suppose. But right. I think if you if you see a photo on Instagram, and I mean I, I'm not active on any social media other than Instagram because I find Instagram is generally generally I like to think the most innocuous of all. But same, a, you know, a, a photograph comes across your feed or whatever, and regardless of of you know whatever it is, it's generally a high quality photograph. You're already hooked in now. You've got this idea that, oh, well, this thing came across my feed. Why can't I have this? I can I can have anything else I want because, you know, Pretty much. Everything, that, everything that you like, whatever, that all, that all factors into that algorithm in terms of what ends up being put in front of mm -hmm. your eyes. So you have to ask yourself how many people are reptile people or, or amphibian people and how many people are just sort of casual observers and this image of this incredible looking animal comes by and that person thinks, well why can't i have this but like with going going back a while i mean i've 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 kind of 
beat this story to death, but I'm going to keep going. I mean, I saw a picture of a bearded dragon in my grandparents' den when I was probably about like seven years old. And I thought myself, I thought to myself, wow, this thing's incredible. I'll, I'll never in a million years see this. It, it could have been, it could have been an animal from the moon. But mm-hmm. I didn't, I, I, I didn't in any way think that I, I should own it just because I had no, again, I was, I was ignorant of it. I had no knowledge of how to care for it. And plus at the time they weren't even really available. They weren't available in the U.S. But yeah. I think that that factors into it a lot is uh, we have a very, very innate sense of instant gratification. And I feel like whatever, you know, pleasure it is that people derive from looking at pictures of things on social media, because they obviously do. It seems like you want to have that pleasure translate into real world experience. And I think that that's where a lot of people get the wrong idea because, I mean, I've seen some photographs on Instagram, some pretty crazy stuff, but you know, I mean, you see a picture of like a white alligator or yeah. Like a, a like a, a huge. There's a picture floating around of this gigantic snail out there. And it, 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 but this particular, yeah. snail, I was like, let me look into this. And it, apparently, it's you can't from have this, them in the U.S. They're illegal. Yeah, and they come from <laughs> this really, really tiny little mountaintop somewhere in Southeast Asia. They haven't yeah. been able to been reproduced in captivity. They have this really specific diet. And then I started thinking to myself, well, think about all the people that are going to want to have this snail just because they saw a picture of it. You know, they associate it with a garden snail, and the right. same thing, same thing with the species of gecko you just mentioned. Uh, oh well, well, I I had a I had a leopard gecko. They're, they're both geckos. Well, well, they're not. They're they're there's the 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 I can't remember if it's the order of the family, but it was a, I think it's a, a gecko day. It's it's huge. It's huge. Right, gecko you know? day is is huge. And yeah. then Within it, you have you know you blepherons and it's. I mean, I can go. I can get way deep into geckos with you <laughs> that's like an area of focus hardcore for me but you know that's but it's also couple that with the i want it now mentality and also it's easy i mean it's a lot easier for the person walking up to the table at the show or getting on fauna or morph market or instagram it's a lot easier for them to send me a PayPal payment and receive an animal on their doorstep the next day. They don't understand that like it wasn't easy for me to get the species. Look at like uh Nerugus, the genus Nerugus, you know, outside of like, you know, Strauchi, but like Kaiseri didn't even exist in the U S before 2007. Look at like Crocatus the Lake Ermia or Lake Accra newt from Iraq. I imported 140 of those as babies. I think it was in 2012. Uh, I could be wrong on that. Um, and that's where all the Nerugus crocatus in the United States and most of the ones in Asia and things came from because they were descended from that, that shipment. You know, and I got them as babies. I had to import them. I had to raise them up. I had to figure out how to breed them. And now all you have to do is send a PayPal payment and they're on your doorstep the next day. So they don't really have a a good grasp of what it took to get that species to their doorstep. I can see how that would be frustrating for someone in in your perspective. It is with certain species because like, obviously if you wanted blue dart, if you wanted to become a breeder of blue dart frogs, you could just go buy baby blue dart frogs at a show or get them to your doorstep. But that's not the, like, we're not going back to like Jack Watley, you know, the discus breeder who sent the first blue dart frogs 
to the, I think it was the National Zoo, if I'm remembering my history. Uh, it, what did it take to get blue dart frogs established in captivity? You know, but now it's so easy. But there were people that had to figure that stuff out, dial that stuff in. They had to come from somewhere, you know, and it takes a lot of work sometimes. Sometimes with certain species, it takes years of hard work and disappointment and tragedy uh, to get that animal to a point where you could actually have enough to offer to someone else. And there's no, no, there's a lack of appreciation for that sometimes. You know, we, we, we've talked a lot about the, the U.S. market here, but you also deal internationally with, with, with markets. I know you deal a lot with, with I think it's, it's with Asia. What's it I like? I mean, all over, all over, but well, yeah. What's it like dealing with international customers or people outside of the U.S. or let's just say people outside of, the, outside of North America? Do you have the same issues well, with, with customer service dealing no, with? No, not at all. No way. <laughs> no way. I mean... Generally speaking, they're a lot more um, respectful. There's definitely, you know, we can use the word humility. There's definitely a lot more humility. Uh, and I think there's just the American culture doesn't really promote humility these days. And I think in other, a lot of other countries, especially Asian countries, you know, humility is huge. Um, and, you know, you have to understand the way that I deal with international customers is quite different. I'm dealing with specialists who are bringing in, you know, a pretty good size order. Nobody's going to export like two frogs and pay all that expense to get two frogs. And, you know, there is like a, a pipeline now where a lot of times now it's like, well, I'm going to do an export to South Korea and then, you know, three or four people will go in on an order or like my one person that I'm fulfilling an order for is like, Hey, can you get me this? Can you get me this? If I buy this from this person, can I have them ship it to you so you can do, put it in the export? And of course I'm going to say yes, even if I don't make money off of it. Um, then it's just part of my you know customer service. I don't really want to make money off of animals that I don't produce. That's just never really been something that's particularly, you know, an attractive thing to me. I've just never wanted to be a broker. Not that there's anything wrong with being a good broker, but it's just not my thing. I'm not cut from that cloth. Uh, so I just do that as a, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, I mean, I've had my import export license since I was probably like 20. God, I mean, I've had it well over 20 years and I, I had to teach myself how to do that stuff. And I mostly did it because I'm very private and I don't want other people to know my business. Uh, I don't, I don't want to use someone else as a broker to do my imports because I don't want them telling everybody else what I'm doing. So I've established, you know, very good relationships with specific individuals and, you know, there's a lot of discretion and a lot of trust involved there. So, you know, it's pretty smooth sailing. I mean, it's very easy to do exports. It's, it's, it's easy to do the export. It's hard to develop the relationships and know like the ins and outs of, of, you know, the, the specific issues that come up. I'm not going to get into names ever with people, but there's a lot of very well-known frog people. Some of them you've even had on your podcast where they've been exporting and their broker has called me in real time while they're having a problem with us fish and wildlife. And, you know, 
I've had to like guide them through it. Like how, and these are people who are experienced exporters, but they're not experienced in CITES, you know, frogs. And, you know, like I, I, I had one, somebody that had shipped a newt to someone, I think it was, or not a newt, but some newts to, I believe it was Korea. It might've been, uh, Hong Kong. Uh, Hong Kong's pretty much done because of the political stuff. I, I think that market's fried. But, uh, you know, and they're like, oh, you know, the Fish and Wildlife was making a big stink about the newts. Well, where did they get the newts? And then come to find out that person got their breeding stock from me. And I was like, nah, man, like those animals, there's been no export of those, you know, or import into the United States of that species since, you know, the ban. Everything that came in was pre-ban. Uh, so the the stuff they're asking for isn't isn't required. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's in a lot of ways, I like doing exports to other countries more and I do a lot of it. Like people say, where are all the waxy monkey frogs? <laughs> They're out of the country. That's where, you know, like I get rid of a lot of that stuff out of the U S so that I don't have to deal with people in the U S about it. And that might bother some people or hurt their feelings, but like, Hey, uh, why? I mean, first of all, I get more money for them in other countries. Uh, it, it blows my mind that people will spend a hundred dollars on an imported Phyllomedusa bicolor, but they balk at two hundred dollars for a captive bred Savage that is not imported ever. So you know, there's it's just you know the market trends, the the economy. I mean, we're truly in a global economy. A, a lot more animals get purchased in this country and exported to other countries than people are aware of. No, it makes sense. It's it's interesting what you said about like Savagii. You you think that with the market for white tree frogs being what they are. I mean, let's just face it. Like white tree frogs have a they're visually they're appealing. You know, they have this mm-hmm. kind of like dopey expression on their face that people yeah. like. And they they they're just it's a, they're pleasant to look at. And like Savagii has this similar kind of experiment. They've got these expressive eyes and they've got these little, little yeah. thumbs. You you yeah. think that there would be a market for that, but I mean, I guess it's just not it's a something huge that market. But I mean, here no, in the no, I mean here in the U.S. market, no, there is. I just won't sell them in the oh, U.S. Oh, okay, all right. You know, no, no, no. There's a massive market for them in the U.S. I mean, all across the world. The problem is, is that if I produced twenty thousand waxies in one year, I could export all of them out of the country with no problem, like at all. And so, you know, it's just, it's easier to do that than it is to deal with the U.S. retail market sometimes. So, you know, when they're, when I'm dealing with people buying, you know, newts and things like that, it's it's pretty easy. Uh, the high-end white tree frogs, like the super snowflakes that I've been focusing on, you know, I'm putting a lot of energy into that, producing animals that are 90% saturation of white uh, with the gold flakes. I mean, I'm I'm taking super snowflakes to a level that, was never even dreamed of and i would much rather you know put effort into that market and develop that market and create those high quality frogs uh then then have to deal with a lot of retail customers for waxies because for every one you know for every one white's tree frog that i sell to a customer it'd be the same price as like you know six waxies got it 
Well, you know, I, I want to ask you, I mean, we're, we're, we're kind of running into overtime, but I wanted sure. to ask you one last question. And I guess it's, it's, it's going to seem like kind of a, a, a simple, straightforward topic, but you and I talked a lot about White's tree frogs in this episode and about people's ideas in terms of what constitutes good care. You mentioned that people keep them too, too wet or too hot or too cold. How would you, I mean, let's just set the record straight. How would you recommend someone keep a White's tree frog? Okay. Well, um, well, first I can talk, let's just clear a couple of things up. Like the Australian blue phase White's tree frog is something that does not exist. It doesn't exist at all. Uh, what is an what is a blue phase Australian white's tree frog? I don't even know what that is. And I produce more white's tree frogs than anyone in the world. <laughs> and there's a history of white's tree frogs at Sandfire that goes back 40 years. So that's a marketing gimmick, like full stop. And that's a way for people to sell normal white's tree frogs that are that are like not because they can't sell normal white's tree frogs. So call them something else. I mean, there's no blue phase white's tree frog from Australia. What is that even? Where do you find an Australian white's tree frogs? I'm just curious because they stopped exportation in the seventies. <laughs> so, so there's that. It's like, well, the way, you know, and then because of the care that people give, you see these blue, blue whites, tree frogs. And honestly, that blue whites, tree frog is a result of bad husbandry. I can turn, I can make any whites, tree frog be a blue whites, tree frog. Uh, if I keep it cold and wet and don't give it good lighting. Now there's some that are more bluish, but not, not the blues that you see. When you see a blue whites, tree frog, uh, in a picture, there's maybe a little bit of Photoshopping, and maybe some bad husbandry as a juvenile. Uh, it was raised with no light, something like that. So similar, like you would see, like a lot of captive bred green basilisks are blue. It's not because they're azanthic. It's because of bad husbandry. Um, so the way that I keep white tree frogs is their hottest part of their cage for good portion of the year is 95 to 100 degrees and with the exception of the water bowl their cage is pretty bone dry uh they don't get sprayed they have water available and that's it they don't get sprayed that's you know not very humid i don't use hygrometers i don't use any type of that i i don't I don't do a lot of things. I don't test water. I don't even have a water test kit, like an aquarium water test kit. And I do massive amounts of aquatics and I breed everything from Suriname toads to, you know, aquatic newts and Pippa parva. And I mean, I, I focus a lot. I have a lot of fish. People don't know that I have a lot of killifish and a lot of other types of fish. And I still don't use a water test kit, but I've also been doing this a very long time. Uh, so the biggest thing is, is that people don't keep whites hot enough. They don't keep them with enough ventilation and they keep them too humid. And so what you'll see, a lot of people will buy like a honey phase white tree frog from us. And they're like, well, my, my frog isn't yellow. And then I'm like, well, yeah, you're keeping it 77 degrees and 65 to 80% humidity. It's not going to be yellow. And so, you know, where white tree frogs come from 
it's pretty hot and dry. It's the same thing that people have the same problems with the red-eyed tree frogs. People set up red-eyed tree frogs in a super humid enclosure, like it's a tropical rainforest, and that's not where red-eyed tree frogs come from. And so, I mean, red-eyed tree frogs do not live where, you know, like a lot of dart frogs live. They don't even live in the same country. So, I mean, red-eyed tree frogs are from southern Mexico through Central America. So, and where they live is not super humid all the time. Yeah, it's humid when it rains. Uh, that's why red-eyed tree frogs are so easy to breed. Is because they're an opportunistic breeder when the weather's correct. So, anytime that you give them something even close to what their breeding conditions would be, they're going to breed. You know, that's why they're so easy to breed, but they don't breed like that all year in, in the wild. It's just because you're giving them, um, you know, the parameters uh, for them to want to breed more frequently. And that's why they're, you know, so easy. Bearded dragons are the same way. I can say the same thing about bearded dragons. In the wild, they don't lay five clutches of 30 to 40 eggs. In the wild, they lay one or two clutches of like 10 to 15 eggs. But because of the way they're kept in captivity, you get 100 babies, you know, 100 to 125 babies a year out of a, be a female bearded dragon. They would never do that in the wild. So, you know, a lot of animals are like that. Veiled chameleons, you know, a lot of stuff. So, you know, people should keep them hotter and drier. I literally never spray white tree frogs, ever. And they're actually in cages that are screen front, screen top lots of ventilation i actually keep waxy monkey frogs the exact same temperature and humidity as i do whites and i keep packing medusa the same way the um, god what would packing medusa be called the mexican dumpy frog or the mexican leaf frog uh i keep packing medusa the exact same way too they're all the same do you use any uvb any uvb no. lighting or no nothing nope. No, and I mean, I can make a lot of people upset with my opinions about UV lighting, but, you know, we can save that for another episode if we ever have another episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's been an interesting uh, one. Typically, the people that tell you that you need UV are the people that are selling you the light. Or it's somebody that's regurgitating information they read somewhere else. But in my experience of 30 years of breeding highly specialized species from Euromastics to multiple chameleons, multiple day geckos, multiple de desert dwelling diurnal animals of multiple species. I have never believed in UV lighting. I have never used UV lighting. And I have also never had a problem with metabolic bone disease. And I have never had a customer contact me with a problem. So, so supplementation, and I'll leave it at that. So, after all this, and I'm, I'm going to admit, I've been keeping my white tree frogs a little bit more like moderate, like high 70s. I, 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 I've been keeping them drier as time. Like when I was younger in the 2000s, I kept them kind of like not wet, but like I put like a stupid water feature in there. Yeah. And then I'm like, this doesn't, this doesn't seem right. I started keeping them drier and drier. That's interesting what you said about the Australian phase because, I mean, I'm not that immersed in the white tree frog world, but I always wondered about that. I'm like, like... There's an Australian phase, but like, how how are you getting them from Australia? Australia hasn't exported anything in a long time, but it's a marketing gimmick. <laughs> I will say this. I will say this, and you may 
edit this out. So I did sell some animals that were line bred down uh, for multiple generations with Australian origins. And I did sell them to, so they will offer Australian wise tree frogs. And those animals are either pure or they're high percentage Australian. And there is a different look to them, but I can assure you that when you see all these online sellers selling Australian blue phase dumpy tree frogs, they're not, and they may not be doing it intentionally. They're not, may, they may not be intentionally misleading people. They themselves might be being misled. But I will tell you, there's no such thing as a blue phase Australian white tree frog that doesn't exist. I mean, Bob and Sandfire were basically like the ambassador of white tree frogs. And they would have been the only uh, way to have kept genetic purity bred from Australian origin animals. No one else, no one else, no one's going to pop up, you know, two years ago and have pure Australian white tree frogs. How would that even be possible unless they smuggled them? And then why would you smuggle a $5 wholesale white tree frog? Why would you go to that much trouble? So it's just very, very unlikely. But there are, you know, like I said, with someone like I just said, you know, the company name, they definitely do have animals that were sold to them that were bred down from Australian origins. Um, and some of the snowflake lines have like high percentage Australia uh, genetics, but they're not pure. That's wild. I mean, is there any, at least the i mean i don't i don't want to get into who i acquired the one i have presently but yeah. the one i bought was was marketed as australian and i'd had wild caught indonesians in the past and i just i noticed that the, the indonesians that i had that were wild caught for years and years and years all kind of looked similar it's it's hard to describe but they had they were a little bit longer you know what i mean they looked yes. like a longer yes. torso and narrower body bigger bigger animals narrower body and if you look at like a pure Australian animal, they're much more round. They, their body is round. Whereas you look at an Indo animal, and this isn't always the case because there's Indonesian animals that are round and there's Australian animals that are elongated. But typically one of the defining physical differences would be that an Australian animal is a smaller animal usually and is more, much more round like a circle. Yeah, that's the that's the one I have now. Because when I got it, I'm like, this is weird. I'm like, I'm not. It it looks like it's kind of like chunky, like it's kind of like a little like a. It, when I got it, it was a frog. It was like about the size of a golf ball. I'm like, this thing, it's all round and it doesn't. It just well, doesn't. That's the thing. But like I've, I mean, I've sold babies in the past wholesale to people that have distributed animals, but they weren't marked as Australian or this or that. So it's very possible that you have a high percentage Australian animal. It's unlikely that it's pure unless it came from like us or, you know, the previously mentioned company, unless someone did get animals that were, you know, but there's not that many people breeding white tree frogs, <laughs> to be honest with you. No, not very many people would be crazy enough to want to breed white tree frogs because you'd have to be insane to want to breed white tree frogs. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, I can I can I, agree with you on that. I, I they're loud. Like, yeah. They, you know, you, you know what? If you think you want to breed white tree frogs, you have experience keeping one thousand 
baby Pac-Man frogs with toe pads, you know, because that's what you're going to get into when you breed white tree frogs. You're going to have a thousand babies that you have to feed large amounts of crickets to. And, and they eat a lot more than a white, uh, a Pac-Man frog would. So it's not really the best analogy, but, uh, raising that number of froglets in, in raising a thousand white tree frogs and raising a thousand red eyes or a thousand dart frogs or is completely different because whites just eat and eat and eat. So yeah, I, if, I would never breed white tree frogs if I, if I was keeping white tree frogs in a house, there's no way in the world I would ever breed them. It sounds horrific. <laughs> no, I mean, you have to have a breeding facility if you really want to breed whites. Like, I mean, I did it once when I was younger and I actually bred them in my, in a like rain chamber tub thing in my dining room. And it was obnoxious. <laughs> it's, it's, it, the whole thing sounds like, like utter chaos. What, what about, I mean, just, just to end on the, the horror that is social media, people seem to have this idea that a, a fat obese frog is a, is a healthy frog. Where, where are these obese frogs that are on like Instagram? Like how are they getting yeah. that way? Because in, I've never seen something like that well, in person in my life. That kind of like goes back into this conversation I had with that person I sold that animal to, and they argued with me about its gram weight. And I said, well, I don't own a scale. I threw all scales in the dumpster because I don't understand. I said, you know, look, uh, how is there a standard for a breeding weight of a frog? Uh, that's, that's crazy. I mean, I'm six foot and 200 pounds and my mother was four foot 11 and 90 pounds. Should she have not produced me? What, what is, what is the proper weight, uh, height, weight and body mass proportion of a, of a human female to, to where she's okay to give birth to a child. You know, you would never have that conversation. You'd be, you know, canceled to the max. And I said, look, uh, I don't keep big, fat, obese, white tree frogs. I, they, I, they don't exist here. And, you know, people are just feeding them more than they're supposed to. They're keeping them colder than they should be kept. And I don't feed pinkies. I don't feed pinkies to white tree frogs. I don't know why anybody would want to. What are, wh how many opportunities do you think a white tree frog in Indonesia, in the, for in the dry forest, how many opportunities do you think that frog would have to eat a baby mouse? Not it's just many. to me not a natural, right, it's not a natural thing. And the common thing is, well, you know, well, I feed, this is a lot of times when people feed pinkies to things that don't normally eat pinkies, like, uh, like bearded chameleon anoles, you know, like chameleolus or, or these other things. It's, well, you know, it's calcium, it's calcium. It's like, well, if you're, if your husbandry is so inadequate that you feel like you need to give a pinky to something that wouldn't normally eat a pinky to compensate for that, then you need to reevaluate your husbandry. I mean, I feed, I feed dubia sometimes. I've eat crickets. I've eat super worms. That's the only thing that white tree frogs get here. And it's mainly crickets. And that's it. I don't feed wax worms. I don't feed anything else. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But you're more inclined to feed your white tree for or your pets, wax worms or silkworms and things of that nature. If you're 
if you have a pet and you're going through the local pet store to buy food for your animals. I don't do that. You know, it's way more work for me to feed like a waxworm to a white tree frog. Now, I've thought about incorporating phoenix worms, you know, the soldier fly larva, uh, to babies. But then again, it's like, well, why? What would the benefit be? I mean, the frogs aren't, they don't have any deficiency that I'm aware of. They're all very healthy. They come out great. I don't have problems. I don't have any health issues, hardly at all. I mean, I had one white tree frog with like a little bit of a weird lip this year um, out of, you know, many thousands. So, you know, I, I don't know what the benefit would be for the extra amount of effort that it would take for me to have to, you know, individually, you know, feed Phoenix worms to something, you know, it's time consuming and with, with little reward. Uh, but I do think about things like that sometimes, you know? Yeah, I, I just, I offer a variety of prey once in a while just to kind of, just to make it more interesting for the animal. I, uh, I mean, my, my staple, I have a dubia colony, so my staple is dubias, yeah. and then crickets are secondary for everything but you that's know, you not can, frogs. But. You can offer your dubia a variety of things to eat and create a completely different dubia to feed every two weeks. You know, like the dubia that I feed this week nutritionally are different than the dubia that I'll feed next week. Just based off of what I'm feeding the dubia. I like to vary the, 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 the gut load. Well, no, I don't, I don't like the term gut loading, but I, I like to yeah. vary the, the, the food that I feed my prey items. Like uh, Me I'll, too. I'll, I, I, I've had a lot of luck just using um, like cat carrots. Yeah. And um, I, I mean, I just, I actually, I, I had just, I've been giving them oatmeal. Not not yeah. not like you know cooked oatmeal, but just yeah, like, yeah, like sure. rolled oats. Yeah. And um, when I can get it, dandelion greens and just like combination different fresh fruits like apples. Sure. And like you said, the idea is just to kind of vary it enough that it's it hopefully can can give it a more balanced diet. Yeah, I don't feed. There's nothing wrong with oats. I think that's perfectly great. But a couple of years ago, I sh I made a big shift at Samfire. And the only food that is fed to any prey items is vegetables. I don't use any chicken foods, any grains, anything like that. Uh, the only thing that I do is for superworms, I keep them in bran just because it's easy and you have to, to sift them and things like that because uh, I breed a lot of superworms. But when it comes to like dubia and crickets, they only get vegetables. And, you know, oranges and things like that. But that's it. I don't feed any grains or chicken food to any crickets or dubia anymore. No, it's interesting. I uh, The other thing I give them is um, I give them zucchini. We, we yeah, eat a lot, we I, eat a lot of zucchini lot of, in this house. Yeah, so I do that too. I mean, I, a lot of squash, a lot of, you know, different greens, uh, you know, carrots, things like that, sweet potatoes, stuff like that. I, I vary the diet of, a, a lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, unfortunately, we gotta we gotta wrap up. We covered a lot. Yeah. We covered a lot of ground, and we're way into overtime. But um, you want to just give the listeners, you know, information in case they wanted to, uh, you know, get anything from Samfire. I mean, honestly, at this point, the best way is to go to the Instagram page to contact Samfire, and that's just Samfire underscore official. Um, and you know, I I let the website kind of go down 
uh, it, it didn't get that much traffic anyway. So I would say that Instagram and I, that's the only social media I as an individual will use either. Like I, I despise Facebook. <laughs> Welcome to and, the club. Uh, yeah. Just the whole environment of Facebook and everything that I know they're owned by the same parent company, but it just seems like uh, Facebook really likes to like throw meat, you know, chum the water. You know what I mean? Uh, so I just stay, I, I haven't even logged onto my personal Facebook in like almost three years. Uh, I just stay off of it. So, and none of my, all my personal stuff would have been animals anyway. I don't, it's not like I, I don't really have any family anyway. So yeah, I mean, just go to the Instagram and contact there. Uh, and that's the best way Just Sandfire underscore official. Cool. All right, everyone. I want to thank Jay for coming on the show again. It's always, always a pleasure having Jay on and, uh, I, uh, there was a, there was a lot in this episode. I hope you guys took away some uh, some some good husbandry tick uh, husbandry tips if you're into keeping white street frogs. I know I did, and uh, yeah, so it was definitely a fun one. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Catch up with you all again soon. <laughs>